We're going to look at the uh, second chapter of Ecclesiastes um, this evening. We're going to follow on in our series looking at that book. And uh, it's on page 588 if you want to find it again. That's Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2. And while you're finding that, uh, just as I was thinking about this, I always uh, seem to to conjure up pictures in my head when I uh, look at chapters and verses. And and, and what came to mind on this one is how much I like bonfires. I'm not a big fan of the winter, but I do like a bonfire. Obviously, today's not a great day for bonfires. But um, one of the things that you learn uh, with bonfires is that uh, putting a dry leaf or a bit of... uh, um, what do they call it, you know, like a, a dead plant, something that's very dry and very thin on, on a, a fire is very exciting because it just bursts into flame and you get all these flames, uh, but then it dies. But actually, it's no good for keeping a fire going. If you're going to keep a fire going, you need some decent logs. And it's one of the things I was very grateful to learn very early on when we had fires indoors is, you know, how to, uh, how to make little uh, bird's nests with newspaper and then you have your kindling and then you have the bigger logs. Um, and it's really, you know, those, uh, that stuff that flames very quickly is good for starting something, but it's not good for keeping it going. So just have to maybe that picture in your head as we look at this, and hopefully, again, it will, be, it will make sense as we look at this chapter. So if you remember from last week, we, uh, we left off, uh, sorry, last month, we left off with uh, Solomon, who was kind of introducing... Um, the reasons why there's so many dead ends in life and so many things that we chase after uh, so often lead to disappointment and they don't satisfy us as, we, as they promised to. And at the end of the chapter, of chapter one, he gets to this point where actually he seek, he's been seeking wisdom all his life, but actually the more he seemed to find wisdom, the more he found knowledge, the sadder he became and that with the increase of knowledge became an increase with frustration, an increase of sadness. And you'll see that in chapter 2, he seems to start by testing his heart to see if he can get rid of this sadness with laughter and entertainment and frivolity and alcohol, to see whether this will be a kind of antidote to that sorrow that seems to have been in his heart the more he's lived and experienced life. Verses 1 to 3, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? (coughs) I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. So it's natural, isn't it, when when you're sad, to think, well, what's the opposite of sadness? Well, it's laughter, it's kind of frivolity and fun. But actually, the opposite of sadness isn't laughter and fun. They're a distraction, but they're not a solution. They don't actually solve the reason that you are sorrowful. And if we look around us, we're, I think, really, the most kind of entertained and frivolous generation there's been. Everything now seems to be just a mass of whirring images and entertainment and, and funny things and trivial things. So you think, really, we would be the most happy and joyful generation that there's been. But you've only got to look around, even at the young people, to see how many depressed and uh, and sorrowful people there are, people without any meaning. Even in those who are entertaining them, how many depressed comics do we know? 
So Solomon found out that actually the antidote to sadness is not laughter and mirth. So then he's, his thought goes on to wine and alcohol. And again, it's an easy trap to, to, to fall down. It's an easy dead end to go down to think, well, if I can't kind of laugh my way out of sadness, then maybe I can numb the sadness. And how many people turn to alcohol or drugs to try and uh, come up with a, a solution, a way out? Yes, wine is God-given. Psalm 104, 14 to 15 says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. But as with so many things that the Lord gives, it's how we use it that's important. And again, the Bible is very clear that drinking too much wine is unwise. Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Everyone who is led astray by it is not wise. Ephesians 5, 17 to 18 says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So the answer to Solomon's question is no. Can you live a life of wisdom, drinking too much wine? Can you be a heavy drinker and lead a fulfilled life? No. Proverbs 31, 4 to 7. It is not for kings, Elemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law. So Solomon, as we saw last week, is trying lots of different things to try and find meaning and satisfaction in life. But every time he pursues them to the, to the nth degree, to the ultimate, and every time they are unsatisfying. How true this is when we look around us at the way that people are living in their everyday lives around us. Even some Christians, <clears throat> afraid of sadness, afraid of silence or solitude or soberness, they fill their lives with triviality and drunkenness. James 4, verses 1 to 3, as we read earlier, says... Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you, you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Verse 8 to 10. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Next, Solomon seeks to find find out if possessions and wealth can satisfy him. So maybe pleasure and frivolity and alcohol can't. But what about amassing loads of stuff? What about if we surround ourselves with wonderful, beautiful things? Look at verses 4 to 10. I made my works great. I built myself houses, planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, made myself water pools with which to water the growing trees of the grove, acquired male and female servants, had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of provinces. I acquired male and female singers the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. 
So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labour, and this was my reward from all my labour. <coughs> so you see, as well as seeking after pleasure, he sought to surround himself with comfort, and with what we would see as the wealth and the pleasure and the success of life. He built success in every arena of life, construction, horticulture, agriculture, international business, the arts. He surrounded himself with silver and gold and servants. And he used his God-given wisdom to, enjoy, to do this. He was a very clever, skillful man. He used his position that the Lord had given him. But he also enjoyed his labour. He found great satisfaction and joy in the work that he did. And he became the richest and most successful person ever in Jerusalem. However, wisdom showed him that the reward of his labour was temporary. You see, there wasn't something wrong in what he was doing. There wasn't something wrong in trying to be fruitful and trying to um, use the, the talents that he had and the resources that he had and to build things and to do things. But actually, it was temporary. It was not all that life was was about. Look at verses 11 to 17. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labour in which I had told. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who do who succeeds the king? Only what he's already done. Then I saw that wisdom exceeds folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise and of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. You see, there's no doubt that wisdom is better than foolishness. Of course it is. And using knowledge and skill to build and create is wiser more satisfying and more beneficial to ourselves and those around us than the passivity of entertainment and frivolity. Nobody is saying that we should all just sit around and be entertained. Of course it's wise to build, to gain, to do. That's why we were put there. That was the the mandate that Adam and Eve were given. But Solomon realised that the same event happens to all of us. The wise man and the fool both die. Foolish dust and wise dust still dust, and will return to dust. However much Solomon enjoyed gaining all his wealth, he knew he couldn't take it with him. He may have greater possessions than anyone who lived before him, but he realised he'd have the same amount when he died, nothing. 1 Timothy 6, 6-7 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. You see, his pursuit of wealth was ultimately self-centred. Notice how he refers to it. I built myself. I made myself. I gathered for myself. 
In Luke 12, 16 to 21, Jesus spoke a parable to warn against this. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I've no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you've many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, we need to see that although it's not wrong to achieve, it's not wrong to work, it's not wrong to gain things and do things, that there's more to life than that. That actually all of these things are gifts from God. And what we need to do is not just get stuck on the level of the gifts, but actually seek the giver. You see, we must beware that narcissistic trend that we see in social media and the TV that encourages us to get more, to do more, to be more, as though somehow we're going to gain what we uh, seek in those things. Somehow they're going to satisfy us by surrounding ourselves with new kitchens, with jacuzzis and holidays. You know, I hate that phrase, house barrassment. Have you seen that advert? Where all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're in your kitchen and it's more than five years old and it's out of date now and your friends are coming around and how embarrassing it's going to be when they see it. You know, how evil it all is. No wonder people are getting into debt because we're being told that what we have is not good enough. In order to be something, in order to be as good as our friends, we must have more, we must have the newest thing. How much pressure there is on young people to have the newest phone, the newest technology. Wisdom also showed Solomon that the success of the wise man could be inherited by fools. So actually it's bad enough that you can't take it with you But worse than that, somebody's going to come after you who could squander it all. That it doesn't even get saved for you for later. Actually, it gets given to someone else and you don't know what they're going to do with it. Look at verses 18 to 23. Then I hated all my labour in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool? Yet he will rule over all my labour in which I toiled and in which I've shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. <clears throat> Therefore I turned my heart and dis- despaired of all the labour in which I toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labour is with wisdom, knowledge and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not laboured for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labour, and for all the striving of his heart which he has toiled under the sun? All his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. You see, as I say, Solomon knew that there was no guarantee what would actually happen to all his wealth after he died. His successor could be wise and build on it and make even more, or could be a fool and squander it all. His legacy was at the mercy of someone else who hadn't worked for it. And as it happened, his son Rehoboam inherited the kingdom, wasn't wise, didn't listen to good advice, and uh, made decisions that that meant the kingdom ended up splitting up. So all of that hard work that Solomon had done ended up being scattered. 
There's an old proverb, uh, a northern proverb. Sometimes it's uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. Sometimes it's clogs to clogs in three generations. And what actually research finds is that if you get a person who's like a self-made person and makes loads of money, what you find is 70% of that money will be lost by the second generation and 90% by the third generation. It takes three generations to go from poverty to poverty. And why is that? Well, the second generation kind of understands the hard work that their parents went through to get their money, so it's a little bit wiser with money. But then their children have no idea. All they have is loads of money and resources with no idea what it means to, to, to get it or to keep it, and they squander it. See, for all his attempts to cheer himself up with pleasure and laughter, alcohol, wealth and possessions, Solomon ends up distressed and sleepless. And later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, he acknowledges the sleep of a labouring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man will not permit him to sleep. But here's where his wisdom comes in again. It shows him that there is light and there is hope. Look at verses 24 to 26. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labour. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. See, the good things of this earth can be satisfying if we don't see them as an end in themselves. That's the key. Yes, we can have enjoyment from the work that we do, from the skill, using the skills that we have, from gaining resources, from providing for our family, from helping our neighbours. We can get a lot of satisfaction from that, and it's right that we do. But that's not an end in itself. That's not the ultimate thing. What we need to do is accept that all these things are gifts and we need to seek the giver, which is God himself. All of these things, all of the good things that we're given, the work that we do, the resources that we have, they're meant to lead us to God because actually ultimate satisfaction is only found in him. Why? Because all of those things will go. When we die, we can't take them with them, and one day they will all be transformed. They will all go. But the one thing that remains is the Lord. It's interesting, the phrase there that he says that uh, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. And really that's the key to this whole thing, is how do we become good in his sight? How do we get out? Are we talking last week about the difference between a maze and a labyrinth. You know, that maze of life that we go down so many dead ends, we get lost, and we don't know where we're going. How do we get out of that? How do we get into that wonderful labyrinth where we go on a journey, and even if it takes us away from, or we think it's taken us away from our destination, we will reach where we need to go. How do we make that transition? And it's being good in God's sight, because then he gives us wisdom. He gives us knowledge. He gives us joy. What was the lesson that Solomon learned? Well, you can't be good in God's sight by doing or having more. Being good in God's sight is not something that we can do 
ourselves. You cannot impress the Lord by the wonderful things that you do. You cannot impress the Lord, even if those things are incredibly good. You think you've done, lived a wonderful life. You will never be good enough. You will never be good enough to be good in God's sight. Why? Because he is perfect. And even the smallest little perfection will make you imperfect. So how can you do it? Well, it's recognising your need for a relationship with God himself, recognising that the only reason that we're here, the reason that God created us, was for a relationship with him. And that actually that's our duty and our joy to serve him, not just now, for all eternity. We do that by recognising that we are sinful, that we are fallen, that we fall short of God's glory, and we can never get back to be good in his sight on our own terms. We can never do it ourselves. What we need is a saviour, and that saviour is Jesus. We need to trust Jesus to save us from our own attempts at goodness. You see, because actually our own attempts at goodness is our own attempts at godness. Us trying to be self-righteous and good enough ourselves is just what Satan was trying to do, just what Adam and Eve were trying to do. We can be God. We can do this ourselves, but we can't. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, being reconciled to God and loved by him gives us a deep joy, even in difficult circumstances. See, pleasure and wealth are like those dry leaves that you throw on a fire. They burst into flame. They look wonderful, but they don't last. They will never give you that long-term heat of peace and joy that you're looking for. If you're looking to build a lasting fire of peace and joy, then only God can provide the fuel. And it's often the big, sturdy logs of hardship and suffering. They're actually the things that bring us peace and joy. It sounds crazy, But for a lot of us, that's our experience, that it's in those difficult times that we actually find the most joy, the most satisfaction. We become closer to the Lord. It's not that tinder. It's not that uh, quick flame of pleasure and comfort. It seems wonderful. It promises much, but it doesn't last. Living for God enables us to take pleasure and satisfaction in the small things, to be content and grateful whatever our lot, compared to others. You know, Solomon found a real joy just in the simple things of life, in food, in relationships, those simple things that maybe, you know, other people will discard in in chasing after all the big things and the shiny things. But actually, when we live for the Lord, we can take great pleasure even in those simple things. We can also take great contentment. We can have great contentment in the lot that we've been given. We don't have to look what others have got. You know, there's actually a thing called Facebook envy because people put stuff on Facebook and all they do is show the good side of their life and everybody else looks at them and automatically feels inferior. If we live for the Lord, if we know the Lord, we don't have to do that. We can be free from that. Why? Because we know that the Lord gives us what we need. He is our shepherd. We shall not want. We can be humble and grateful that every good thing comes from him. James 1 in 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, 
with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, living for God enables us to store treasure in heaven without having to worry about storing it on earth. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, success and wealth and possessions and even pleasure, they're not wrong in themselves if they're gained humbly and gratefully for the glory of God. But we should be generous and use our wealth for good and not just for our own pleasure. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 18. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in living, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Living for God means that we, can lear- we learn to be content and grateful, not greedy and covetous. 1 Timothy 6, 8-10 to Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So what can we say in conclusion? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know the Lord, then I've got a question for you. Are you listening to the media? Are you listening to social media when they tell you that pleasure and possession will bring you lasting happiness and meaning? That this life is all there is, so the more successful you, you are, the more that you have, the more happy and satisfied you'll be? Well, I can tell you from the word of God that they're lying to you, that actually they're dead ends. All it is, is tinder on a fire. It's just dry leaves that will be pleasurable for a minute, but won't last How far are you willing to pursue these things before you admit that they'll never satisfy you? Right until the day that you die? There's only one way to find rest for your souls, and he's a person, the Lord Jesus. Matthew 11, 28 to 30 says, Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And for those of us that are Christians, it's so easy, isn't it, to listen to the world? It's so easy to fall into that trap. It's so easy to forget what we know the truth to be. It's so easy to find ourselves pursuing pleasure or wealth instead of God. How easy can we turn to entertainment or shopping or alcohol to cheer us up, especially when we feel low or weary or bored? They seem to offer such an easier, uh, quicker fix than the things that we know that we need to do, spending time seeking the Lord in prayer and study and fellowship. How easy do we do things just to fit in with our families or friends, to feel normal, 
to try and think that our lives somehow is as good as someone else that's just got a new kitchen or a new iPhone. We need to encourage one another. We need to all the time be batting, each, batting ourselves back onto the right road, as it were, encouraging ourselves to remember that our strength, our security, our joy, our satisfaction are not found in the things of this world, but in the Lord. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Isaiah 55, 1-2 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Amen.